The failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Hello, and welcome to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. The National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine's Committee on the Public Health Consequences of Changes in the Cannabis Policy Landscape held its third full meeting January 11th and 12th. These public information gathering sessions featured presentations and panel discussions covering various aspects of the social and equity implications of marijuana policy. One of the presenters was Shalene Title, founder and director of the Parabola Center. Here she is. I was asked to talk about creating social equity through cannabis policy. And my connection to this topic is that I, um, when I was appointed as a regulator, it was primarily my job to write and implement social equity regulations in the first state to do it here in Massachusetts. And I looked for inspiration to um, the folks in Oakland, California, because the activists and legislators there were the first to incorporate social equity into cannabis. So I served from 2017 to 2020. And since then, um, there are many other regulators and activists who have incorporated these concepts, improved upon our policies in Massachusetts, and certainly in the future, um, there are more who will improve upon theirs. So um, that is the context. And I want to take you through um, the topic of social equity by talking about what it is, laws and regulations, results, constitutional limitations, and then the necessary next steps. So when we get to what is social equity, I think that um, any of us here could probably talk about that all day. Um, we, in fact, we have been talking about that all day. Um, but it can easy to it can be easy to get paralyzed and, and kind of panicked when you define it, and then we never get to step two. So let me give you kind of the most I think simple and straightforward definition in the context of cannabis. Social equity is the idea that we should try to repair some of the harms caused by past enforcement of marijuana laws. That's it. I would like to also pause here to hopefully bust a myth. And that myth is the idea that this is partisan or fringe or woke or something that um, not many people support. I hear that when bills are being discussed in new states, I hear that in the context of banking reform, um, and that is actually not true. So this is the poll from last year by Data for Progress, and it found that a majority of American voters support cannabis equity policies, and that includes a majority of Republicans who support directing cannabis tax revenue to community reinvestment programs, which is one aspect of equity, um, but uh, an essential one, I'd argue. On the next slide, I'm going to share some unreleased survey results from my organization, Parabola Center. We wanted to see what different values people care about when it comes to cannabis policy. So we teamed up with the Research Institute RTI, um, and they surveyed people from across the political spectrum, a diverse group of people, and asked them, what do you care about when it comes to legalization? So we'll be releasing all of this research um, in the future, but I wanted to show you this one relevant piece of it. 
when asked, when you care about, uh, when we talk about cannabis, what do you care about? Um, we found that 71% um, said that they care about social equity. There's two columns because we were actually testing whether our um, educational materials were effective, but that actually turned out to be the least interesting part of this um, because we found out that even without any education, just with that very simple definition, um, not only do a very strong majority of people support the idea of social equity in cannabis, um, but they care about it more than any of the other values that we asked about. So with that said, um, let's get into the laws and regulations. Um, but again, I just want to, before we get into the nitty gritty, um, just say like those results are consistent with my experience where I think the idea of social equity resonates with an innate idea of fairness that we all have. And if you understand that the war on drugs has been unfair and wrong, which most people do at some point, um, then you understand that it should be repaired. So these are some elements um, that are in place currently in social equity laws in cannabis uh, and regulations. I go into these in more detail in a paper published by the Drug Enforcement and Policy Center called Fair and Square, How to Incorporate Social Equity into Cannabis Regulations. Um, and there are a number of other resources that will break these down for you. So, and, and let me also just quote a couple of my colleagues before we get into these things not to forget. One is Shakia Scott, who runs uh, Equity for the City of Boston. She always says social equity is not a program meaning you can create all of these programs, but if you don't incorporate equity into beginning to end everything that you do um, in your agency or in your efforts, then you're not going to reach it. It has to be centered. Um, and then my colleague Chelsea at Marijuana Justice, she always says equity is just a word. And so you can put it into a policy or you can say it a lot, but what really matters is what you do. You could even do all of these things without saying equity and you'd still be doing equity. So let's start with criminal justice. Um, that's been, of course, a, a big topic of uh, conversation today. I would agree with the general sentiment that this is the most important aspect of social equity. Um, we can, in fact, do standalone legislation at any level uh, to address these issues. We should, um, arguably, we should address these issues as a prerequisite to legalization. Um, the last prisoner project talked about the gold standards, um, so I won't repeat it, but just to really hammer at home, automatic expungement is key. We've seen in many states that automatic expungement works and allowing expungement, but requiring the person to go through the process largely does not work. The second piece is business licensing, exclusive or early access to licenses, two-tier market, grants and loans, technical assistance. So this was my primary area of focus as a regulator. And basically it says that this is a maybe $100 billion industry. We're reaching $5 billion in my state. Um, the people who have been harmed by the war on drugs should be uh, the ones who are benefiting. Um, exclusive or early access to licensing is something that works. So this is working in Massachusetts. Um, this is what we did for delivery licenses. The only people who can access these licenses for the first two years are social equity businesses, those that are owned and controlled by people who have been harmed by the war on drugs. And we also have a limit on how many licenses one entity can own or control. So you can own or control up to three, 
Um, but more than that is not allowed because we can't have companies dominating the entire market. We have to leave room for those small businesses that might take some time to start up. Um, and many states, by the way, have done the opposite of this. They have allowed the largest medical operators to have a head start. Um, and then they turn around and say social equity is a failure. So be aware of that. So a two-tier market is really important. Um, if you're not familiar with market terms, uh, let me briefly explain. It sounds so boring, but it's a very, very key concept. So a two-tier market is in contrast to vertical integration. Vertical integration means that one company can own the entire supply chain from cultivation to processing to distribution. And so when you as a consumer go into a store, they can control, they can create a hundred different brands and sell you those brands. A two-tier market separates those things. So when you as a consumer go into a store, the person who's selling you the product can't own or be controlled or bribed or induced by the producers. And so it creates a separation, it creates independence um, and this is an important aspect of equity. So some states have done that. Some have had social equity programs. New York is the first to actually uh, do both, which I think has been groundbreaking. Um, grants and loans are extremely important. It's often named as the number one issue when you survey people who have been harmed by the war on drugs about equity um, and technical assistance is important as well. Employment programs are key, um, but we do get a lot of feedback that entry-level employment programs are not enough, um, that they are the opposite of equity, um, but there's certainly a place for them in terms of training, placement programs, advancement, and mentorship programs, and making sure that people have the um, un unspoken advantages that uh, generally people who have not been impacted by the war on drugs are able to access. Um, I could argue that unionization and workplace safety in the context of cannabis are also important aspects of equity. Cannabis tax reinvestment. Um, remember this because I'm going to come back to it in a later slide. And I also spoke about it earlier when I said it's the most broadly supported um, across parties. This is reinvesting a percentage of revenue into impacted communities. A good example of this is Illinois' Restore, Reinvest, Renew um, grant program, which puts tax revenue back into impacted communities. And a great trend that we're seeing is that the percentage being invested is going up higher and higher um, over the last decade as we're seeing more and more states legalize. And then finally, direct reparations. This is my guess as to what will be the greatest area of activity in the near future. It's currently being tested in a few municipalities. Evanston, Illinois, for example, is looking at how they can redistribute uh, tax revenue to people who are impacted by housing discrimination, uh, particularly African-Americans in that city and their descendants. So they're working out um, who's eligible, how much do you get, how does it work? Um, and this is something that's broadly supported as well. So my guess is that we'll be seeing a lot more of this. So in the next slide, I'm going to be sharing uh, some results because you're probably wondering how do these programs work? Um, there's an organization called Supernova Women um, and they are one of the groups I mentioned in the beginning from Oakland, California that have been working on equity longer than anyone else. 
Um, their board is entirely BIPOC women, just like Parabola Centers, actually. And they did this survey, um, where the study, where they teamed up with Ecotone, which is an impact analysis firm, and they looked at equity programs and put into quantifiable, monetized terms what the results were. And they found that for every dollar invested in social equity programs, there's a projected social return of $1.20. And this is the projected social value generated through increased earnings for operators and employees, wealth, health, and tax revenue. Then they divided it up by these different um, elements that I just went through. And I mem remember I told you to think about cannabis tax reinvestment. They found something um, different and important specifically for that type of investment into equity. Those funds that are earmarked to the community's education programs, health assistance, employment training, and expungement assistance, for those, the social return on investment increases to $4.56 for every dollar invested. So these programs work. They don't work um, as much as I want, as much as most people want, um, and they can always be made stronger, but they work. I want to bust another myth, which is that social equity programs are inherently unconstitutional. Um, there's a couple elements that might be unconstitutional. So let me briefly explain that um, before we talk about next steps and then close up. So there's two um, criteria that have been problematic. When you think about um, how you actually implement an equity program, uh, particularly in the licensing and employment piece, um, you have to start by deciding who is eligible. So most states have used some form of residency in a disproportionately impacted community, and many states have used race as one criterion, perhaps out of many. My state uses both. So race quotas in marijuana licenses have been ruled unconstitutional. And that's when you say with a hard line, for example, 15% of licenses will go to people of color in this state. That's been ruled unconstitutional. And then separately last year, as you may know, the Supreme Court ruled that race-based affirmative action programs that take race as one factor in college admission processes violate the Equal Protection Clause. And so that may have uh, an impact on equity programs. Now, separately, when it comes to residency and those community those communities disproportionately harmed, as I mentioned, the Dormant Commerce Clause of the Constitution generally prohibits states from enacting laws that either directly discriminate against out-of-state businesses or indirectly burden interstate commerce in a way that is excessive or unreasonable. That may sound like a lot of blah, 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 but the bottom line is that the eligibility for social equity programs should not be based on race or residency alone. If they are one factor out of many, that's up in the air. So I'm in a state where, again, we take both into consideration and those laws are still in place. They've held up against uh, any challenges, although the lawsuits were dropped. Um, but we have other places where they have not held up. So this is an important thing to understand. I think that we may see a strong defense where equity programs will be held up in the way that other um, programs where you're repairing harm for residents or for people of a certain race have been held up. 
At the same time, though, we can, if you prefer, uh, avoid all of these questions altogether when building a social equity program. So let me show you how that would work. This is alternate, or some might say race neutral criteria. Arrests, convictions, and incarceration. So this would be when you create eligibility for someone in a program when they have a uh, conviction or arrest, however you want to design it, and perhaps another impact on their life, like education or income. And then this would apply regardless of race and residency. Similarly, criminal justice system impacts on someone's family. So if your spouse or your parent was incarcerated, for example, um, you would be one of the beneficiaries. And then finally, the Supreme Court ruled that academic institutions may still consider how race may have shaped an applicant's life. So we haven't seen it yet, but my guess is that we may see equity programs where um, applicants are asked to describe how race has shaped their life, and then they're then able to access um, the benefits that they're entitled to. So now I'd like to wrap up with next steps. Um, when it comes to states and what we're seeing going on around us, um, I think it's clear that states should continue to adapt these social equity efforts. They've changed a lot from when I got started in 2016 to now, and I hope they continue to evolve as we gather more data and evaluate it and learn what's working and what's not. Policymakers should collect data consistently across jurisdictions. It's so clear that that's something that we need, um, and yet we still don't. Automatic expungement and sequential licensing should be prioritized. And then finally, I think that any person who cares about equity, and that includes, I think, many people here, has to become educated and involved with the development of federal cannabis regulations right now um, as those are being developed. It's my opinion that any of the legalization bills that are currently being considered in Congress would wipe out all of these um, social equity efforts and programs and the progress that they've made without changes. So um, on my last substantive slide here, uh, these are next steps and they are outlined in our latest paper. Um, so if you go to parabolacenter.com and you click on our latest paper, you'll see us expand on all of these points, why they're important next steps. And then um, there's sample draft language as a starting point as well. So the first is to explicitly allow um, these laws, including their equity programs to operate as designed, uh, which they otherwise perhaps could not under the dormant commerce clause. Um, and then we want to allow businesses, social equity businesses and small businesses to engage in interstate commerce first, limit the harmful impact by large corporations by preventing excessive consolidation and establishing anti-monopoly provisions, and then disqualifying tobacco companies from the marijuana industry based on their past conduct, particularly in terms of lying about their products. So to summarize, social equity means trying to repair the harms of prohibition. Most people support social equity as a concept. Current social equity programs have a demonstrated return on investment. Policymakers should be prepared to defend their programs from constitutional challenges. And without specific action, federal legalization will wipe out the equity and justice aspects of legalization.
That was Shaleen Title, founder and director of the Parabola Center, a longtime activist, good friend and friend of the program, speaking at the January 11th meeting of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine's Committee on the Public Health Consequences of Changes in the Cannabis Policy Landscape. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Hey, my name's Don Paley. I'm, I'm the author of Drug War Capitalism. And I just want to give a shout out to the people at Drug Truth Network who are doing amazing work to get the stories out. Um, you know, Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! talks about trickle-up journalism. I'm a firm believer, you know, believer, you know, like where these stories are being reported first. Who's on the ground covering this conference and doing all these interviews? It's Doug McVeigh, Drug Truth Network. So listen up and, and thanks again for, for your so important work in terms of just getting, getting the truth out there and getting these stories, which are just so repressed in the mainstream media, out to the broader public. Sheila Vicaria, PhD, MSWs, Deputy Director of the Department of Research and Academic Engagement at the Drug Policy Alliance. She's also the author of a new book that's coming out in February entitled The Harm Reduction Gap, Helping Individuals Left Behind by Conventional Drug Prevention and Abstinence-Only Addiction Treatment. One of the things that you discuss um, towards the end, one of the things you discuss towards the end is, I think, really, frankly, really meaningful here in my um, home state of Oregon, and that's you talk about drug exceptionalism. And of course, we we have legal marijuana, and we now have um, a uh, we now have a legal state certified um, psychedelic uh, psychotherapy. Um, nothing nothing better than having a state certified therapist. So, um, what is, what is what is drug exceptionalism? Why is this a why is this a problem? Part of the reason why I continue to talk about legal and illegal drugs was because when we categorize substances in ways that do not acknowledge, like it's it's perfectly fine and important and, and necessary to classify drugs by their effects, right? So calling drugs depressants, calling them stimulants, calling them psychedelics, um, you know, all of those kinds of things are really important. We need to classify drugs by their psychoactive effects so people understand the mechanisms of action, how to anticipate the, you know, the effects, all of those kinds of things, right? But unfortunately, we live in a society that classifies drugs among uh, on other lines that are more infused by morality and seeming morality, um, seeming acceptability, uh, legality, um, and what have you, that actually um, creates hierarchies in people's minds of good drugs and bad drugs, acceptable drugs, unacceptable drugs, safe drugs, risky drugs, um, and lines that are not necessarily grounded in science and lines that are often subject to change. Right. Too. And when we create these false categorizations of drugs, we're still upholding certain hierarchies where certain drugs are better than others. And as long as we continue to deem certain drugs bad, it will always have the biggest ramifications for the users of those bad so-called bad drugs. Right. Um, and so as long as we keep carving out exceptions for the good users of the good drugs, but relegating others to marginalization, oppression, criminalization, uh, stigmatization, um, we are never truly going to be free, right? And we're never truly going to advance true equity and safety and public health um, among our communities. Because when we continue to carve out certain categories, right? So like, you know, historically, alcohol and tobacco and nicotine products have 
had a very privileged state in our society in terms of being legally available and accessible. We also have a carve out for drugs deemed medications, um, which are given a lot of credence and are often characterized by feelings of so-called safety, perceived safety and perceived acceptability, which are actually not always even grounded in science. And we can talk about even just the beginning of this overdose crisis as the ways in which hydrocodone, oxycodone, these um, prescribed opioids were deemed as safe because they were seen as medicines, right? Rather than really understanding that even medicines come with risks. You know, Doug, you and I were just talking about living with the lifelong effects of various medical treatments and procedures and how oftentimes medicines will serve one function but can also come with other risks and drawbacks. And that when we create these false categories of like legal means good and maybe safe, uh, medicine and prescribed means safer, also more acceptable, and that illegal drugs are somehow um, dangerous and harmful and uniquely lethal, that we don't actually have an educational conversation about like how all drugs come with risks, all drugs require precautions and education and uh, safety strategies that we can implement. Um, don't just read a drug for its classification and assume that you know how to use it or like uh, the best strategies to use it. And that oftentimes drugs in various categories, these buckets of medicine, legal and illegal drug, share a lot of the same characteristics. You know, one of the thing I one of the things I talk about in my book, for instance, is methamphetamine, you know, street crystal methamphetamine and um, pharmaceutical forms of amphetamines that we use widely for treatments for ADHD and uh, for narcolepsy, and now increasingly for long COVID and brain fog and, and long fatigue, right? Um, and that we, they, these are pharmacologically drugs that act in the brain in very similar ways and users experience a lot of the same effects. Yet we see one group, the folks who use the illicit ones, as people who've squandered their lives who've wasted their potential, who are, you know, we have these stereotypical ideas of people in poverty, white people in poverty, people with no teeth, people who are gaunt, people who look and act a certain kind of way. Yet those same medic, you know, that same pharmacological substance, we prescribe to our children to give them a bright future, to help them achieve their potential. We see them as um, as overcoming a challenge like ADHD and now being able to live a so-called normative life because of this magical medication that works in their brains and helps them focus and, and be productive citizens. And so the reason why I wanted to talk about drug exceptionalism, the reason why I talk about alcohol in this book, the reason why I talk about tobacco and nicotine in this book is because um, when we buy into these false temporary classifications, legal, illegal, medication, we overlook the fact that all drugs come with risks, all drugs can be used safer, um, all drugs can be, you know, people can be educated about um, these substances, and that these lines are blurry, um, and that they don't help us in the broader scheme of things. That was Dr. Sheila Vicaria, Deputy Director of the Department of Research and Academic Engagement at the Drug Policy Alliance. Her new book comes out in February. It's entitled The Harm Reduction Gap, Helping Individuals Left Behind by Conventional Drug Prevention and Abstinence-Only Addiction Treatment. Yes. 
And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. This has been Century of Lies. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Century of Lies is a volunteer production for Community Radio and syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's audio port service. Find this edition of Century along with an archive of past shows at the Drug Truth Network website, drugtruth.net. You'll find a link there to subscribe to the Century of Lies podcast. We'll be back in a week with 30 more minutes of news and information about drug policy and the failed war on drugs. For now, this is Doug McVeigh. For the Drug Truth so Network, this so is Doug McVeigh asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition, the century of lies. Drug Truth Network programs archived at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy. Mm-hmm.